Now, the scripture today that we've just heard read brings a, a topic of immense importance to our attention. To echo Paul in chapter 4, verse 13, it's a matter about which we do not want to be uninformed. What's said here is written in response to some practical questions. I think we can relate to these questions. Most of us are interested in what the future holds. We know that what you anticipate for the future makes a big difference for how you live in the present. So you'll live differently today depending on whether tomorrow you're planning to binge on Netflix or play field hockey for Canada at the Olympics. And likewise, many of us are acquainted with the grief of death, separation from those we love. We wonder if it's final. Will there be reunions? These are the types of issues at play in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And in response to these issues, God offers us something that is both uplifting and weighty and something that is crucial for the long haul. And here's how I like to sum it up. Jesus is coming back. And that means that some waking up is going to happen and that some waking up needs to happen. Jesus is coming back. There's some waking up that's going to happen and some waking up that needs to happen. So let's give our attention to God's word. Stare with me, if you would, at chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, this statement uh, speaks into a moment of sorrow and spiritual confusion in the Thessalonian church. Some members of that church have died. They were beloved people. They're missed. It is a time of grief. Look at verse 13. What Paul writes here is given so that those who are still alive will not grieve as others do without hope. Let me paint the backdrop of this situation for you briefly. From verses 14 and 15 and also 16, we can infer that the Christians in this particular church, the church in Thessalonica, were not only eagerly awaiting, but also imminently expecting the return of Jesus. They thought that Jesus, the Lord of life, would return so soon that they'd all bypass bodily death. When Paul had been with them in person, he told them about Jesus' second coming, yet it seems he had to pack his bags before he got to finish that lesson. That's what we learned from Acts chapter 17. It was after Paul departed that some of the Christians in that community died, and as a result of their deaths, an existential crisis ensued. And those who remained, the remaining in that church community, worried that the ones who died might somehow miss out when Jesus returned. And this, of course, made their grief all the worse. Well, Paul makes it very clear, abundantly clear, that that conclusion is utterly faulty. Christ's return doesn't just benefit people who happen to be alive at that moment when he comes back. It also benefits deceased Christians. And there's a lot of them. And you and I, any of you who are Christians, though I can't say this with certainty, will probably join their ranks. We'll join the ranks of those who have, to echo Paul's words in verse 14, fallen asleep. Now, fallen asleep. On our lips, that may be a euphemism for death, but on Paul's lips, it ain't. Paul is explaining Christian hope here. What is Christian hope? How can it be defined? Well, one way is this. Christian hope is a memory of your future. Christian hope is a memory of your future. There is a future, post-mortem. That's what Paul is saying here. In the context of the ancient Greco-Roman world, 
This type of hope was a very rare commodity. To quote one scholar, nowhere outside of Christianity do we find at this period any widespread view of a worthwhile life beyond the grave. In other words, what Paul is saying here is not just a Christianized version of general sentimentalism about life after death, because there was no sentimentalism like that about life after death in the ancient world. They didn't do hallmark bereavement cards. This isn't sentimental. It's serious, it's substantial, and it's linked to the Savior. Glance back at verse 15, if you would. Paul says this, We declare all of this to you by a word from the Lord. Now, these verses aren't Paul's wishful thinking. They actually hail from Jesus' own teaching. But more importantly, they're established, verse 14, by Jesus' resurrection. For what God did with one man in the middle of time, God will do with all people at the end of time. That's how the church fathers used to put it. The Christian conviction about embodied life after death is not arbitrary. It's logically grounded in historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus. I am certain of this. The evidence is compelling, and if you're not convinced, I would urge you as strongly as I can to check it out. Christ's resurrection is the basis for Paul's happy and hopeful news. When Jesus returns, some waking up is going to happen. By the way, this is why Christian burial grounds have historically been called cemeteries. That word simply means sleeping place. It boils down to this. For those in Christ, the state of death is not terrible. It is not, in fact, our end or our eradication. In truth, if anything, it's a time of serene rest, and a rest that will be gently and gloriously interrupted when Jesus returns. And on that day, as verse 17 tells us, there will be reunions. Reunions with our loved ones. Reunions with Jesus. It'll be something like that moment at the end of book three in The Lord of the Rings, when Sam wakes up after the last battle and Frodo is there beside him, he survived too, and Gandalf is standing before him with a radiant smile. And Sam looks at Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Jesus says, yes. That's where God's people are going. Can you imagine that? No, you really can't. But we can hope for it. We can hope for it with a hope nurtured by the scriptures in this passage right here in particular. And that is a hope that sustains our discipleship over the long haul. Now, it goes without saying that this teaching of the Bible, which we've just walked through, has suffered comparative neglect in our day and age. I think no doubt its minimization reflects the temper of our times. There's a lot of pressure in our cultural environment right now to live as if the present life is all there is. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has written extensively about that. He calls it the imminent frame. He says that in a manner distinct from all past cultures, late modern Western societies have convinced themselves that there's nothing truly transcendent in the cosmos. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that's it. Now, on the other hand, we live in a society that's constantly pushing against death. I mean, just look at the Statistics about medical expenses, especially in the last seasons of life. We have machines that keep us going even when we're gone. Now, there's a lot of good in that technology, of course, but something needs to be discerned in it all. And to quote Stanley Harawas, a theologian, what's going on is that we're scrambling to get out of life alive. 
We're trying to get out of life alive. But much to our consternation, we can't. Original sin, it has been said, is that thing about humans which makes us capable of conceiving our own perfection while yet incapable of achieving it. All of our efforts to overcome death in the end amount to polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Or to put it in Hamlet speak, there are more things in heaven and on earth that can be dealt with by your abilities. If we move against death on our own, we will be defeated, you will be devoured. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because Jesus Christ is the one who devours death and he will devour the death in us. Do you realize that? Will you let him? Let's move on. Would you look now at chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3? Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now what Paul's saying here is the answer to a second major question. When is Jesus coming back? This question is one that has fascinated people for centuries. It's generated all sorts of wild guesstimations. You may remember the Howard Camping saga from a few years ago. He was an end times prognosticator who predicted Jesus' return on October 21st, 2011. That was the third time he predicted it. Well, three strikes, you're out. Howard had to shut down his radio program. But in broader context, what camping did was nothing new. In the 10th century, leading up to the year 1000 AD, Christians were convinced that the apocalypse and the end of the world were at hand. And in the midst of that first millennial madness, a piece of music was composed. It's called the Mass for the End of Time. It's the oldest written piece of surviving Western music. And while I've enjoyed listening to that haunting composition, you've got to see the folly. Jesus didn't come back. But speculation about Jesus' second coming didn't start in the Middle Ages either. It's actually present in the New Testament and in those times. In fact, it's at play right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Christians who originally read this letter wanted to know more. It wasn't enough to know that Jesus promised to return. They wanted to know when. And in response to this curiosity, Paul basically says, no can do. That information is above our pay grade. Verses 1, 2, and 3, as some of you will have noticed, essentially quote Jesus. Go read Matthew chapter 24. To run with Paul's metaphor in verse 3, pregnant women would love to know exactly when labor is going to happen. They'd love to organize it in their diary, but alas, that ain't how it works. Now, what's being said here is a stark rebuke to those who would speculate. I mean, Jesus loves Howard camping, but Howard's getting a spanking. Don't preoccupy with end times math. When they'll start, the stages, how long it'll take, all of that speculation about the second coming. Don't do it. We don't know when. All we know is who. Jesus. That's the memorandum. Now, how does this apply for us? Not in a direct way, I think. I think it's safe to assume that the temptation to end-time speculation is not all that pronounced here at St. Peter's Fireside. I mean, a few of you, like Preston, may be apocalyptos, uh, but probably not most of you, and Preston's not actually an apocalypto. So what is our application? 
Let me put it like this. When you hear about Christians who fixate on the, the timing and the nature of Jesus' return, who broadcast it and write big crazy books about it and buy billboards to disseminate their thoughts about it, don't you dare conclude that they represent biblical Christianity. And don't write off Jesus because of it. They don't. They're operating in defiance based on what Paul says right here and based on what Jesus spells out elsewhere. You know God's opinion on this matter, so be assured in that. However, while God warns us against certain types of second coming speculation, he does want us to be mindful of Jesus' return in another sense. And that is something that needs to wake us up right now. Last night when I practiced, my clap was louder. Sorry. <laughs> it does, the, come, the return of Jesus needs to wake us up right now. That's what it needs to do. Look, let your eyes roll to chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. Well, you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and let us be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the, the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now what Paul's saying in these verses actually connects back to verse 1. And in verse 1, you may have noticed there's two words for time that are in that verse. One of those is a word for time in the sense of duration. The other one is, is a word that, for time that has the sense of opportunity, like now is the time. It's an opportunity. Opportunity. That is precisely what we have in the present as we live knowing that Jesus will return. But opportunities can be missed. Verse 4 suggests that when Jesus returns, some people are going to be caught off guard. Same way you'd be caught off guard if a burglar broke into your house at night while you were slumbering and snoring. God does not want that to happen to you. If you're hearing what the scripture is saying right now, Jesus' return should never catch you totally unawares. It may be an intense moment, but it should not be a surprising moment. That's the point. Now, let me extend Paul's analogy in verse 4 about the thief a little bit. If you're awake in your home because you know that a thief is going to be coming, even if you don't know exactly when, you will not be totally caught off guard when the burglar enters. You'll be ready. It may be an intense moment, but it's not going to sneak up on you totally unknowing. You're aware that something is going to happen. That's verse 2. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. That's the point. One old pastor once said that for Christian, Jesus' return might be a bit like the rising of the sun. There will be an intensity of light and heat, but we won't be shocked by it. In fact, we'll welcome it. Because if you're used to living in the light, then when the light gets all the brighter, the adjustment's going to be a bit easier, especially compared to those who are used to living in the dark. God wants us to be aware of this reality. Are you? Are you? Now, what does being awake entail a bit more concretely? A couple things at least. First, in verse 6, Paul says that we should not be found sleeping. Now, what he means here is that we should not be spiritually insensitive or dull. We don't want to be spiritually unconscious. We want to be spiritually sober and awake. In verse 6, the, the term for awake there, actually, it doesn't just mean conscious. It, mean, it has an active coloring. It's about a posture of determined watchfulness. Same thing with sober. Paul's not writing against inebriation here. He's talking about being alert being alert. 
I once heard a story about a group of Scottish fishermen, and one morning they set out in a boat to bring home the bacon or the halibut, whatever. It was a calm and reasonable day, but as time passed, however, a storm gathered, and the winds howled, and the rains hurled, and the waves reached treacherous heights. And it took them a long time to return to the harbor. Their families, of course, realized what was happening, and many of their wives flocked to the pier, scouring the horizon for any sign of their imperiled husbands in the little fishing vessel. They were frightfully worried. As the fishermen finally began to approach the land again, they could see their wives, and they looked out at the, at the pier, and they started to say, look, there's Roger's Cindy. There's John's Amy. There's Ivan's Joanne. But there was one man who couldn't see his wife in the harbor. I won't say who. And when they moored the boat, he trudged up the hill to his house, and with a heavy heart, he knocked on the door, and his wife opened the door, and she said, I waited on you. To which he replied, ah, but the others watched for their husbands. There's a difference between waiting and watching. Waiting is something you can do indifferently. Watching is earnest and eager. Paul is saying that we should be watching. And that doesn't mean looking into the skies, but rather living in light of the fact that Jesus could come at any moment and on any day. Our posture should be one of spiritual alertness. Now, less abstractly, what does that entail? For starters, it means that we don't want to be lulled into locating our hope in our portfolio or our possessions, our degrees, our bank account. We don't want to slide into thinking that our life depends on our career success or what people think of us or even the criticism we receive. It means that we resist being tricked by the thousands of pop-up ads that appear every day telling us that what we really need is a new iPhone or another vacation or new shoes or even a foray into a pornographic adventure. Don't believe it. Stay awake. I'm telling you that of all the Christians throughout history, I think we are among those who are most in danger of falling asleep. Our culture is deeply hedonistic. If you don't agree, come talk to me afterwards. Very sensual. Sensuality is not always bad, but in our culture it is often vile. We have affluenza. Never before have Christians had to cope with such wealth and comfort and relative ease, which is constantly threatening to lull us into complacent sleep. And in this setting, in this context, it goes without saying that to remain awake and alert the way that St. Paul says we should, that's going to make us kind of distinct and even weird. Flannery O'Connor once quipped, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you strange. But it can be a good strange. It can be a refreshing strange, a strange that equates, a strange that equates to freedom from the counterfeit forms of happiness that are all around us as we live with an eye to the one who can and will truly satisfy our deepest desires. In the long haul, Jesus' promise to return is meant to guard us from spiritual stupor. In verse 8, Paul adds a bit more to the present implications of Jesus' future return, and here's what he says. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, faith, hope, and love. Now, that is the language of the now but not yet paradox of Christian existence. 
Christians aren't just people who anticipate the return of a king, but we also participate in the kingdom already come. We participate in the kingdom already come. While our future with Christ is radiant and bright, in the present there is yet some of his light. On this point, there are a couple things to pinpoint. First off, the clothes that Paul has in mind here are not textiles, but qualities. Faith, hope, and love, that's what we're to wear. More than crosses around our necks, and there's nothing wrong with that, but more than crosses around our necks, we are to be people covered in faith and hope and love. When others look at us, that is what they are to see. But we should also note that Paul's imagery is battle gear. Now, he could have picked something else, uh, black tie attire, formal, formal wear, the French cuff of faith, the bow tie of love, the cummerbund of hope. <laughs> but armor is the image. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Because living with an eye to Christ's return is charged with challenges. <laughs> and bearing faith and hope and love in this world is not always going to be easy. In fact, at times it might feel like war. That's why we need armor. This isn't a cocktail party. There's still a lot of darkness around, and it's not just out there, but also in here and inside of us. We fight battles against unbelief and despair and hatred. We don't just fight them out there, but also in here, inside of ourselves. And even if you follow Jesus, and those who have for a while will know this to be true, you still know what it means to be dragged down at moment by these types of sins and temptations. But we resist. We fight. Though not with the typical weapons of war. We use the weapons that Jesus himself carried, faith and hope and love. And by doing that, we bring a foretaste of what is to come. We personify our destiny with God. Most of you have seen Back to the Future. Great movies. Now, one of those movies, Marty McFly, is the presence of the future in the present. He's the presence of the future in the present, and that is what verse 8 is getting at. Paul is saying that if you're connected to Jesus, God will bring the presence of your future into the present. The coming power of God's kingdom, the power that will comprehensively renew the entire universe, can be present in our lives now. And this is a big part of Christian existence. Jesus wants his church, he wants us, me and you, to be a preview people. A preview people. Just like the previews at the movies. When you see a preview at the movies, what you're doing is getting a glimpse of the future. You see footage of an actual film that has yet to be released onto the world. Actual footage that will be released. In faith and hope and love, we are to live preview lives. Amazing. Will you let Jesus do this to your life? Will you let him do it today? Are you willing to surrender what you are for what you could become? We need to wake up. Now, it may seem appropriate to draw to a close at this moment, but sorry, it's not. Because St. Paul has one more thing to say, and we need to hear it. It's in verses 9 and 10. This is what he says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or whether we've fallen asleep, we might live with him. If you miss the point that's being made here, your whole understanding of this passage can be warped. Of course, Paul's saying that knowing that Jesus is returning should impact our lives and our, our conduct here and now. 
But it would be a huge pitfall to conclude that our capacity to imitate Christ, our capacity to live consistently and perfectly in faith and hope and love, is the truest foundational basis for our salvation. That would be a mistake. That's what Paul's saying in these verses. And what he's saying here actually brings us deep, 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 deep assurance. Sometimes my stutter kicks in, sorry. But maybe God wanted me to emphasize that. Deep, deep, deep assurance. Let me explain. One, one of the keys is in verse 9. Commentators say that the word that's translated obtain, obtain a salvation, could actually better be rendered as receive. That's a better translation. Receiving presupposes a gift, and the gift is salvation given by Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man, human, so that humans might become sons and daughters of God. Friends, the truest, the ultimate basis for our present and ultimate well-being is not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. And that the most important thing you can do in this life is to receive that. And here's the thing. When you receive that, to the, to the degree that you receive that, you actually get assurance. Think about it. If our salvation, if, if our ultimate well-being is dependent uh, on our capacity to live in faith and hope and love, well, we're in trouble. Because who does that consistently every day? And I know I'm not the only one who doesn't. Even Pope Francis would be in trouble. Even John Stott would be in trouble. What Paul is saying here distinguishes Christianity from all other faiths, so far as I know. In Christianity, you're not saved by the teaching of the founder. You're not saved by implementing the teaching of Christ perfectly in your life. Oh, no. It's not the founder's teaching that saves us, but it's the founder himself. That's what the New Testament means when it says that our salvation comes by being washed in Jesus' blood. Now, I realize that's a rather grotesque image, but what's being communicated with that language is that Jesus Christ, God, came into this world and he found us looking like the living dead, maimed, marred, and splintered by the sin and brokenness that are all inhabiting us and surrounding us. The life is hemorrhaging from us. And Jesus looked at that and what he said is, I want to give you a blood transfusion. That's verse 10. He gave his life for hours. He poured his life into us literally that we might wake up and live again. That's what Paul's saying here. And that isn't, that isn't just what Jesus taught, it's what he did. To the degree that you get this, begin to get this, to the degree that this melt, melts your heart, launches you into la-la land, you will begin to live in faith and hope and love. But you'll, you'll know that our lives, our faith and hope and love, they aren't the source of our ultimate well-being, they're a reflection of him. We're just writing in small letters what God has written in large letters over the world in Jesus Christ. This cannot impact, cannot not impact how we do life. In fact, I think it leads to a certain mode of life, a mode of life which is epitomized, among others, by a guy called Anthony Ashley Cooper. And if you need a hero, here's a good candidate. Cooper was a 19th century parliamentarian in Britain. And if you go to Piccadilly Circus in London today, you'll see a statue of him in the center of the street, but nobody knows who he is anymore. But here's what he did. He labored for 60 years in Parliament, dedicating himself to social reform and social relief in England. 
1842, he passed the Coal Mining Act, which prohibited underground labor by women and children. In 1845, he passed the Lunacy Act, advocating for the humane treatment of those who are insane or mentally ill. In 1850, he passed the Ten Hours Factory Act, regulating working hours for women and children in factories. In 1851, the Common Lodging Act, ending overcrowded conditions in boarding houses. He advocated for prisoners. His entire career was dedicated to the cause of children and orphans and prostitutes, the mentally ill, the handicapped, crippled children. That's how he spent himself. Yet at the end of his life, here's what he wrote in his journal, and I quote, there is no real remedy for all the mass of misery but in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. How about that? That's a man living with a great sense of clarity, with an intense awareness of spiritual reality, a sense of readiness and clear priorities, knowing all the time that the king is coming and the kingdom could break in at any moment yet living a life that is a preview of that. What would it mean for you and me to live lives like that? We are being called to look to Jesus' return and to live in anticipation of it, not by looking up in speculation, but by looking out, by hurling ourselves into faith and hope and love, all grounded in Christ, and living out of that towards our neighbors over the long haul, however long it may be. Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And to be awake to this doesn't just mean that you're waiting for heaven, but also that you're wanting to act and live in a certain way for a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. Are you awake?